Okay, praises be to our loving Father that we are able to again gather together to study his words and his commands. Welcome to another episode of the BHP. And today we're going to be looking into part two of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is appropriate because after all, tomorrow we're going to be celebrating the eighth day, which is connected with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we discussed last week and also in our special worship service, some of the major themes of the Feast of Tabernacles. For example, we know that when we look at the Old Testament and look at the themes covered by the Feast of Tabernacles, they cover the memorial of booths, the final harvest, and the eight-day celebration. Last week, we talked about the meaning of booths and why it's called a memorial, because when the people of ancient Israel were instructed to observe the feast, they were reminded of certain events that took place throughout their wilderness journey. And so the purpose of the feast was to remind the people of Israel about the time when Yahuwah caused them to live in shelters. This is why it's called the Feast of Shelters. It's also called Sukkot because the Hebrew word for shelter is Sukkot. And so the name for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, well, it has many names. Sukkot is one, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters, and Feast of Booths. And so one purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles is to remind the people of Israel during the time when they were going through the wilderness journey and how Yahuwah protected, guided, and comforted them while they stayed in temporary shelters and booths. And of course, we know that the wilderness is a perfect place to develop one's trust in Yahuwah, because in the wilderness, you are out of your comfort zone, and you are more or less forced to rely not upon yourself, but someone greater than you. And so the wilderness was the perfect place for the people of Israel to learn to trust in Yahuwah. So that's one of the central messages of the Feast of Tabernacles. So we learn from our past worship service that the Feast of Tabernacles reminds us, first and foremost, to trust in Yahuwah rather than ourselves. Number two, the Feast of Tabernacles reminds us that this earth and everything in it, in the earth, are temporary and is fading away. And there's something eternal that awaits us all. And lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles reminds us that our weak and decaying bodies are only temporary, and it will be replaced by a glorious and eternal body. And so that's the theme of the Memorial of Booths that is part of the Feast of Tabernacle Celebration. However, we also have other themes, and today we're going to talk about the final harvest. Now, when we think of the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, it also goes by other names. We know it's called Sukkot, Feast of Shelters, Feast of Booths, but it doesn't end there. Because according to Exodus 34.22, this is what it says, you must celebrate the festival of harvest with the first crop of the wheat harvest and celebrate the festival of the final harvest at the end of the harvest season. So the Feast of Shelters or the Feast of Tabernacles, according to Exodus 34, also bears the name, the final harvest. And in other translations of the Holy Bible, 
the praise festival of the final harvest is called Feast of Ingathering. And so we can see that the Feast of Tabernacles, in addition to having the name Sukkah, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Shelters, Feast of Booths, it's also referred to as the Feast of Ingathering and Feast of Final Harvest. And so we know because it's also called the Feast of Ingathering and the Feast of Final Harvest, it is called that for a reason and a purpose, which is distinct and different from why it's also called Feast of Shelters and Feast of Booths. So we need to know why is it called Feast of Ingathering? Why is it called Feast of Final Harvest? And the reason for that is because the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of a harvest. We all know that the people of Israel lived off the land. It's an agricultural-based nation, the people of God. And so many of the feasts center around the harvest because the land of promise produced a harvest, a rich harvest at that. This was promised by Yahuwah even before they entered the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy 8.8, it is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates of olive oil and honey. And so here in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us about what the people of Israel can expect when they enter the promised land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but so much more. It's going to produce so much great harvest, like wheat and barley and grapes and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, to name a few. And so we know the people of Israel living off the land depended upon the land's production of its fruits, of its produce, like wheat and barley. And so when we look at this table, it shows us some of what was gathered and harvested in the land of promise there in Israel. And so it included wheat, barley, oats, peas, chickpeas, lentils, uh, sesame, flax, millet, grapes, figs, pomegranates, and lastly, olives. And so you can also see across uh, the table um, the times when they are usually harvested. And so the first to be harvested, because the year starts around March, first of Abib, of course, the, the first to be harvested is barley right? They also harvest wheat. And so you begin the spring harvest with the harvest of grains. And then towards the middle, you have the sesame, the flax, the millet, the grapes. And then you have towards the end, you have the figs, the pomegranates, and the olives. And so the people of Israel depended upon the produce of the land. And so they harvested what they were going to eat from the land. So they begin to basically sow their seeds or prepare for the harvest during the months of October, November, January, February. You notice those months are missing, right? December, January, February. Those basically are the waiting periods. And so they wait for the time when the first barley begins to appear, and that would signal the beginning of the, the harvesting season. And so here's a closer look at when they were harvested. Um, you can see the orange. That is the time when these are harvested. 
So around April, they harvest barley. And then towards the end of April, beginning of May, during the time of Pentecost, they begin to harvest the wheat and they begin to get the main harvest of the barley. So when they begin to celebrate the uh, Passover season, it was the beginning of the barley harvest, but it's not the main harvest. The main harvest usually falls during Pentecost. This is why it's called Feast of Harvest. We'll talk a little more about that later on. And so we have here towards the beginning of June, which is about the time of uh, Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, they begin to harvest millet and grapes and figs and also pomegranates. And towards uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the autumn feast, they begin to harvest the grapes, the figs, the pomegranates, and the olives. And so that's kind of the timeline of the harvest season for the people of Israel. And so when it was time to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, it turns out they celebrate not only the, not only the uh, produce of the land during the summertime, but also during the springtime. Because according to Deuteronomy 16, 13, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. The Bible tells us when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they were gathering the rest of what was remaining of the harvest from the threshing floor, which signifies grain, right? That's the grain harvest and your wine press, which signifies the fruit harvest. So you have the grain harvest, you have the fruit harvest. During the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a celebration of all the harvests. This is why the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of the harvest in totality. And it's also called the final harvest. Now, why is this significant? Why does the harvest mean so much to us spiritually? Let's read the book of John, 45, uh, 4, 35 to 38. You have a saying, four more months, and then the harvest. And so they begin to say this like around November, November, December, January, February, then March, you begin the harvest. So there's a saying, Four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, Christ says, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. So another who sows and the one who reaps will be glad together. The saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I have sent you to reap a harvest in a field where you did not work. Others work there and you profit from their work. So here's our King Yahushua and he's speaking about the harvesting of the land, right? Because there was a saying, you wait four months beginning in November until you begin to see the produce of the land. And so you begin to harvest at the appropriate time. However, our King Yahushua links or connects the harvesting of the land to the harvesting of people who will receive everlasting life. This is why the harvests that, is meant, that are mentioned in the Holy Bible may signify the work of salvation. This is why when we want to see and understand the work of Yahuwah when it comes to salvation, 
we look at the feasts because the feasts center around the harvest. So the harvest is connected to the feast, which is connected to the work of salvation. So we can understand many things about the, this, the work of salvation when we look at the harvest patterns of the people of Israel. And what is interesting to know is that of the seven feasts of Yahuwah, it turns out there are two major feasts that are called Feast of Harvest. Do you know what they are? If we go to the book of Exodus 23, 14 to 17, the Bible tells us this. Each year, you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Celebrate this festival annually at the appointed time in early spring, in the month of Abib. For that is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. No one may appear before me without an offering. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. Finally, celebrate the, fest the festival of the final harvest at the end of the harvest season when you have harvested all the crops from your fields. At, at, at these three times each year, every man in Israel must appear before the sovereign Yahuwah. And so here we know that for the people of ancient Israel, they were instructed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate three main festivals. What are they? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But you notice in this passage, the Feast of Weeks seems to be missing. The Feast of Tabernacles seems to be missing. Are they missing? No. They're just called by a different name in this uh, part of Scripture. And so the Feast of Weeks is the festival of harvest. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the final harvest or the Feast of the final harvest. And so Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks and Feast of Tabernacles, they're associated with, quote, unquote, what again? Harvest, right? Harvest, the work of harvesting. And so this makes a lot of sense when we look at how our King Yahushua has fulfilled the Moedim. The Moedim, or the seventh feast of Yahuwah, is the timeline of our father Yahuwah when it comes to working out this plan of redemption and restoration. And so if you look at this chart again, which you have seen countless times, the Moedim fulfilled by Yahushua, you notice the green are the ones that are called a harvest. Feast of weeks is called a harvest. It's called the Feast of Harvest. Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Final Harvest. And so this tells us there's a connection between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, how many here remember what happened on Pentecost or on the Feast of Weeks? You probably remember quite vividly, that's when uh, 3,000 or so Jewish people received the Holy Spirit and they became kind of like the fruit of the work of our King Yahushua. When our King Yahushua was preaching, during his ministry here on earth, there were many who rejected him, but there were those who accepted him. 
And so those who accepted him received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so basically that started the work of harvesting. The people were being saved because of the power of the Holy Spirit sent by our king, Yahusha. And so the Feast of Weeks is the beginning of the work of seeing the results of the work of harvesting. The Feast of Tabernacles is called the, the Feast of Final Harvest. And so what we see is after the Feast of Final Harvest, after the Feast of uh, Weeks, later on, there's going to be another work of salvation because the harvest, I mean, the Moedim tells us about the harvest patterns. And so in this way, we can kind of understand the Moedim as a great harvest. There's a way that we can see the Moedim as being portrayed as a harvest for the purpose of salvation. And so before you can have a harvest, you need to have a harvester, a reaper, right? We know that all of us are part of the work of harvesting. So we plant the seeds and we harvest. But the main one who is doing this work is who? Yahushua. And so for us to be able to produce the great fruit of the harvest of salvation and eternal life, there has to be one appointed to be the main harvester. Who is that? Our king, Yahushua. And so he needs to be prepared. This is why in the Melodim, the Bible tells us that in each of the first three Moedims, our King Yahushua, being the harvester, is being prepared. And so Yahushua dies, the harvester dies during Passover. He's buried, the harvester is buried uh, during unleavened bread. Piece of first fruits, the harvester resurrects and appears to his disciples. And so the first three Moedim, the spring feasts, it's there to tell us the harvester is being prepared. Now we can expect a great harvest, but the harvest that is expected from the Moedim will come in two phases. The first one, the first harvest, and then a final harvest because the week of uh, Pentecost, the week of Shavuot or the day of Shavuot, the Shavuot a festival, that is called the first harvest. And the Feast of Tabernacles is called the final harvest. And so the harvest for salvation has two phases, the first and the final. You get it so far? Okay. And so after the harvester resurrects, of course, he sends the Holy Spirit to basically begin to reap and begin the harvest for the first phase. And then when the Feast of Trumpets will sound, there's going to be there's something that will happen to those that were harvesting. What is that? They would be resurrected. And so when the Feast of Trumpet sounds, the first harvest will be taken to heaven. And so right now, we are in the phase of harvest, part of the, the phase that started during the Feast of Weeks. We belong in the so-called church age. And so in this age, Yahushua is still harvesting. He's still calling people into the fold. This is why from the time of the first century, from the time of Pentecost, up until this very moment, it's called the time of the Gentiles. It's the time of harvesting. And so the people are being called 
into Yahusha to become a part of the body of Yahusha, to become a bride of Yahusha, to receive the promise everlasting life. And then the trumpet will sound, Yahusha will return, and those who are part of the first harvest are going to be reaped. They're going to be taken to heaven and have their bodies changed into glorious heavenly and eternal bodies. And then Yahusha is going to come back. But before he comes back, those who are in the earth after the harvesting or the rapture or the harpazo, many of them are going to be enlightened. And so there's going to be a great awakening. And so seeds are being planted again for the next great harvesting. Because when you think about it, when all of a sudden there are people who are receiving salvation, they're left behind, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty, and they're more open to enlightenment. This is why during the tribulation, many people will be enlightened. Many will come to see Yahuwah and to see Yahusha because they want to be saved. And so the tribulation is an opportunity for people to awaken themselves and be prepared for a future day of atonement when Yahusha returns to earth, Armageddon, which happens on a future day of atonement. And so the harvester on the day of atonement prepares for the final harvest because on the day of atonement, you know what Yahusha will do? He will imprison Satan. He will destroy and take to the lake of fire the beast and the false prophet. And so he's preparing the next great harvest, which is the final harvest, the feast of tabernacles. Make sense? This is why it's so important to understand the harvest and the Moedim and how it connects to the work of salvation. And so when we see the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's called the final harvest, do you know what that means? It means in the future, in the future, there's going to be a final work of salvation. This is why the work of salvation today is not the final one. This is not the final work of salvation. The final work of salvation will take place in the future. When in the future? Let's read the book of Ephesians 1 verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, how many here are familiar with this passage, Ephesians 1 verse 10? You know, I was born in the INC, Iglesia Ni Cristo, Church of Christ in, in English. And I was brought up in the faith according to the teachings of the Iglesia Ni Cristo, the Church of Christ. And what I was taught ever since I was young is the fulfillment of this passage, according to them, according to their teaching, is when people are gathered together in one organization, one church. But that's not what Ephesians 1 verse 10 is talking about. What then is it talking about? Well, before we can go in depth, we need to first understand what it means when it says in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. So we have the fullness of the times, which refers to the end part of Earth's history, because we know the history of the Earth has been given or recorded seven days. One day is 1,000 years. And so when we talk about the end 
we're talking about the final day. Okay, so the fullness of the time refers to when it's going to come to its completion. But what does it mean when it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times? Well, when we look at the Hebrew word for dispensation, it is the word oikonomia, Greek word 3622, which basically means the management of a household or one's administration of a household, administration, dispensation. Basically, what it means are house rules, because when Yahuwah deals with people, depending on the age, depending on the circumstance, it changes. Yahuwah has different ways of dealing with people according to a, a different circumstances. So a dispensation refers to a period of time when people that when God deals with people in a unique way. That makes sense because, for example, if, if I was a parent, me being a parent, because I'm a parent, right? We have different rules when it comes to our dealings with our children, depending on how old they are, right? And so when there's, for example, five years old, we have different rules. You can't go outside by yourself. But when they're adults or when they're teenagers, do we still apply those rules? No more because of the different circumstance. So administration of the people, of, of the, those who belong to God, the rules that apply will change depending on the circumstance. So what circumstance, as circumstances change, God's way of administering people change. And so when we study the history of earth, there are several dispensations. And so it begins with Adam and Eve. And so when Yahuwah created Adam and Eve, they were created upright and perfect. They were in the Garden of Eden. No sin was found in the Garden of Eden. And they had they lived in paradise, basically, right? And so this was basically this is what, what the Jewish people calls the age of innocence. But then they fall, and because they fall, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. And so they were no longer allowed to eat from the, the fruit from the tree of life, right? And so this ushers in the next dispensation, which is from the fall to Noah. And this is where the people were being guided by their conscience. And the commandments of God was written in their hearts. And then from Noah to Moses, this is when Yehovah begins to give promises, promise to Noah promise to Abraham, right? Yes, there were commandments already, but they were not yet written in law. There was only an oral law. But during the time of Moses, through the time of Yahusha, this was called the law, the, the age of law. This is when the law was given based on the covenant. And then from Yahusha to the millennium, which is our dispensation, we presently live in the dispensation of Yahusha. This is called the age of grace. So Moses to Yahusha is the age of the law. Yahusha to millenniums is the age of grace. We live in the age of grace. During this time, there's harvesting taking place. Yahusha's planting and harvesting people into the kingdom. This is the first harvest. It's not yet finished. It is ongoing, but eventually it will finish when we are harpazo with our King Yahusha so that we can be with him in the heavenly abode. However, there's still a final dispensation here on earth. And that's what Ephesians 1 verse 10 
is talking about. The final dispensation, because when this is fulfilled, Ephesians 1.10, there's going to be a change in the rules, a change in the administration. The way God governs the people during this time will be different from the way we are being governed now or the way that we are being administered now. There's going to be a total difference. And what makes it different? The Bible tells us that during this dispensation, all things will be gathered together in one under the subjection of our king, Yahusha. In other words, in this dispensation, Yahusha is going to rule over all things. Question, is Yahusha ruling now over all things? No, it's not. What's the proof? Just watch the news. What do we find all over the world? We find homosexual marriages. Even the Pope is agreeing that under certain circumstances, homosexuals can get married, right? There are people who commit um, adultery is becoming a norm. The Ten Commandments is being rejected. And so when you hear the news, we find blasphemies against God himself, against our king, Yahushua. And so for sure, we're not yet in that dispensation. But when this dispensation comes, all things will be in utter and complete surrender to our king, Yahushua. Because all things will be made under him during this dispensation. And so this dispensation is called the millennium. This is the final dispensation of this earth. And what makes it unique is the fact that Yahushua will be the one to rule. In the millennium, the final dispensation, everything will be in submission to Yahushua, the Messiah. And so the world right now, because Yahushua is not in control, it's falling apart. It's becoming worse and worse. But when Yahushua steps in, right, when from heaven he begins to come to the earth on the atonement, removes Satan, destroys the beast and the false prophet, and begins to set up his kingdom, what's going to happen? We're going to have a new and glorious age for the earth. A new and glorious age that centers around Jerusalem. A Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem here on earth. And so this is what the final dispensation is all about. That's why when you read Ephesians 1.10, it's not about the gathering of people in one church organization. That's not what Ephesians 1.10 is all about. It's talking about Yahushua bringing to submission all governments, all people bringing to submission under one headship, who is our king, Yahushua. This is the millennial kingdom. Of course, when Yahushua, our king, is ruling, He's going to have people who will help him or who will work with him. Who are they? Those who will work together with Yahushua in the work of judging to become kingdom uh, kings and priests during the millennial kingdom. Let's read the book of uh, Revelation 2, 26 to 28. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my father, and I will also give them the morning star. And so here, our King Yahushua is promising 
those who belong to him in the ecclesia, in the church, right? So if you belong to the ecclesia, there's a promise if we overcome, if we are victorious. And who are those who are victorious? Those who obey the king, Yahusha, in, today until the very end. And so if we are victorious in our obedience, our king Yahusha until the very end, we're going to be given authority over all the nations. In other words, we're going to co-rule with our king Yahusha. Remember, in the last dispensation, Yahusha is going to be king over all the earth. And so all other governments are going to be made subject to him. He gets to rule everything. Yahusha will be basically the one who will make the choices and decisions concerning all government laws throughout all the nations of the earth. But of course, we are going to work together with our King Yahusha, given the same authority. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? Think about it. Yahusha says that we will have the same authority that Yahusha has that was given to him by the Father. And so we're going to co-rule together with Yahusha. When will this take place? Revelation 20, 4 to 6, and I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. Want to pause there for a while? What we are what we are reading here is about what happens after Armageddon. And Armageddon is when our King Yahusha from heaven returns to earth and destroys those who want to destroy Jerusalem. And they're destroyed. The kings are defeated. The beast, the false prophet, Satan is in prison. And so what we read in Revelation 24 to 6 comes after the day of atonement. And so what happens now is there's going to be authority that's going to be installed after the kings of the earth have been removed. Okay, new authority is coming. And the Bible says, I saw thrones and the people sitting on them have been given authority to judge. Who are they? The ecclesia who are overcomers. And so they're going to be given authority to judge. But the Bible also says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Yahushua and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And so those who are going to co-rule with our King Yahushua, because they belong to the ecclesia or the church that belongs to Christ. And because they are overcomers, they're victorious because of their obedience to the voice of our King Yahushua. The Bible says we're going to rule for a thousand years. And the word 1,000, what does that signify? The millennial kingdom. And so those who belong to Yahushua and are victorious will reign together with him at the start of the millennial kingdom. The Bible also mentions those who were beheaded for their testimony of Yahushua and those who proclaim the word of God. These are the people who during the tribulation, they reject the beast 
and are martyred. So they too will be resurrected. That's called the first resurrection in this context. Okay. And so they're the ones who also will reign together with Christ. So these are the ones who testify of our King Yahushua. And at the appointed time and day, when the millennium begins, they will co-rule with our King Yahushua. And so Yahushua has been placed as king, right? And Yahushua places us to, to assist him and to work with him. And so what is going to be enforced in the millennial kingdom? Let's read the book of Zechariah 14, 16 to 19. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, Yahuwah Almighty, and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahuwah Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. Yahuwah will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when the new kingdom has been installed by Yahuwah, he places his king, appointed king, who is Yahushua, and those who will assist him, those who belong to the ecclesia, right? They will be the ones to enforce the will of Yahuwah. And what is one of the requirements of Yahuwah for the people throughout all of the earth? That they must worship Yahuwah. And they will observe the Feast of Tabernacles. This is why when we observe the Feast of Tabernacles today, it's a way of rehearsing, rehearsing for the time when it's going to be enforced. And how is it going to be enforced in that future time, in that final dispensation? Bible says um, there's going to be great punishment for those who disobey. And so everyone will be required to go to Jerusalem to worship Yahuwah and to observe the Feast of tabernacles and so this takes place during the millennium during the uh, final dispensation of the earth's history what also uh, will happen what will the millennium be like because when we read this passage it seems like oh boy there's going to be a lot of sadness a lot of oppression does that mean that because yahusha is the king as placed by yahuwah does it mean that it's going to be a time of sorrow? No. Look at what the Bible teaches us. Because in the Holy Bible, when you look at the Old Testament, even the New Testament, there are more prophecies about the millennium than there are prophecies about everything else combined. Did you know that? Most of the prophecies in the Old Testament is about the millennium kingdom. This is why when we look at the Old Testament, uh, from time to time, we're going to read at that day. I don't know if it kind of rings a bell. But in the Old Testament, there's going to be prophecies by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, Malachi. is going to say at that day or on that day, it's referring to the millennium. And so there's going to be many events in this new dispensation. Many changes in this new dispensation that's different from how it is now. Now, during this age of grace... Is very different from how the earth will look like during the millennium. And so what are some of these changes? Let's take a look at Isaiah 14, 3 down to 7. 
it shall come to pass in the day Yahuwah gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. Yahuwah has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Here the Bible tells us in the millennial kingdom, no oppressors will be present. And when you think of a number one oppressor, Bible gives us the example of Babylon, how they were oppressing the people, enslaving the people. When our King Yahushua rules, he's not going to be a ruler like the ruler of Babylon. And you can even think of modern day rulers that kind of fit the bill as well. There are despots today, right? There are rulers who are tyrants and oppressors. You can think of some countries like North Korea, Russia, so on and so forth. There will be no oppression. There will be no tyrants during the millennial kingdom. This is why the people will break forth into singing. So already we know when Yahusha is reigning upon the earth for 1,000 years, it's not going to be a time of sorrow, but a time of joy. It's an age, a golden age for the people of God and for the whole earth. What else? How else does the Bible describe the millennium? Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahuwah, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth, and the word of Yahuwah from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so in the millennium, it's going to be very different from what we have today. Do you know what characterizes the nations of the world today? Wars, fighting. There's so many wars taking place right now. Hundreds of wars. I don't recall the exact number, but you can Google how many wars are presently being fought today, and it's going to astound you, because we live in some countries that do not experience war at, at the moment. It doesn't mean there's not there's no wars taking place. There are many wars taking place right now throughout the history of man. What characterized the relationship between people from different parts of the world is violence, war, oppression. But the Bible says in the millennial kingdom, the swords, the spears, which represent weaponry, weaponry that kill, it's going to be changed into pruning hooks and plowshares. This is why no one will lift up a sword against any nation. And so there will be peace on earth. Can you imagine? I mean, how long has it been since we really wanted peace? I mean, it's been the goal of humanity ever since the beginning, right? I mean, after World War I, after it finished, League of Nations was developed because they wanted to make sure 
that nothing like that would happen again. And then shortly after, what happened? You got World War Number Two. You now you have the United Nations, but wars are still taking place. World peace, it cannot be achieved. It will only be achieved when Yahusha is now the king of the earth. So that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. What else? In Isaiah 11, 6 to 9, we not only have peace between man and man. Take a look at this. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know Yahuwah. Interesting. Not only will there be peace among men, it's going to be peace among all living creatures. This is why it even says the cub and the calf will lie down together. A calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. A child can play with cobras. The lion will eat hay like a cow. Do you know what this means? The earth is now being changed and it's being restored to how it was like during the days of paradise, during the time of the Garden of Eden. Because before the fall in Genesis 1.30, this was the plan and design of Yahuwah. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that, it, that is what happened. And so in the original plan of God, in the Garden of Eden, right? The wild animals, including the tigers and the lions, they were designed not to eat flesh, but to eat green plants. And so what we find in the millennial kingdom, slowly it's being restored to how it was like before the fall. So paradise is being restored throughout the millennial kingdom. What also is going to characterize the millennial kingdom? Isaiah uh, 33, the people of Israel will no longer say we are sick and helpless for Yahuwah will forgive their sins. And so I'm kind of thinking that in the millennial kingdom, we're, go, we're not going to find too many hospitals. We're not going to find health insurance anymore. Not going to worry about that anymore. It's not going to be a problem in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because people will not be sick. In Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, millennial kingdom, the deaf will hear words read from the book and the blind will see. What else? Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. And so in the millennial kingdom, there is no sickness. And for those who are crippled or who cannot see or who cannot hear. And so any kind of deformity will be 
obliterated. There'll be no more such a thing in the millennial kingdom. No sickness, no deformity, no handicaps. That's not going to be found in the millennial kingdom. This is why you can see the dispensation of the millennial kingdom is different from the dispensation of grace. You see the difference? And so in the dispensation of the millennial kingdom, Yahushua being the king, he provides all these benefits because he is the king. What else? In the book of Isaiah 65, verse 20, no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. And so the Bible tells us that in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be an increase in one's lifespan. And so no babies will die when only a few days old. That's going to be a thing of the past. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. And so what is the full life for an adult? Well, the Bible tells us when a person is 100, still young, he's still like a child. You're 100 years old in the millennial kingdom, or you're just a baby. You're just a young child. Because when you compare it to a full life, 100 years is a very, very short time. Well, what is considered a full life for an adult in the millennial kingdom? Isaiah 65, 21, 24. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards, for my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune, for they are people blessed by Yahuwah, and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them, and before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. So in the millennial kingdom, Bible tells us the lifespan of an adult is as long as the lifespan of trees. There are trees that go for thousands of years. And so a person can live throughout the entire millennial kingdom, right? Because the millennial kingdom is only how long? A thousand years. And so the lifespan will be greatly increased reminiscent of the days of the time of Adam, right? And so everything is being restored back to the time before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Not only that, the people who live in the millennium, they work for a living. And the work produces gains that they can enjoy. So they will build houses for themselves. There's no such thing as inflation. They're going to enjoy life. It's going to be filled with happiness, peace, and joy, not only amongst themselves, but with nature as a whole. Not only that, spiritually, they're going to be connected to Yahuwah. How so? Even before they finish their prayer, Yahuwah will answer their prayer. So those who live in the millennium are going to be blessed. In the millennium, the people worship Yahuwah and worship Yahusha. That's what makes it unique. And so the millennium, the 1,000 years of the final dispensation of planet Earth 
is an opportunity for more harvest. This is why it's called the final harvest, because in the millennium, more people are given the opportunity to be saved. I mean, that shows you the heart of Yahuwah, right? He wants people to be saved. And so even after the harpatsa, even after the taking of the ecclesia, even after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Yahuwah does not give up on his people, not just Israel, but all the nations throughout the world. And so this will take place in the millennium. In the millennium, the conditions prior to the fall are being restored. This is why no disease, no oppression, no violence, no harm. But there's only one problem, right? <laughs> only problem is people still die, right? I mean, when the Bible says their lifespan will be as that of the tree, it means it's only temporary. Yeah, it's a long life, a thousand years, but there's still the problem of death, right? And so is that all that there is? Is that the final decision of Yahuwah? No, because we're not yet finished. You see, yes, there's the millennium that corresponds to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles points to the future. It foreshadows the work of Yahusha for the millennial kingdom. But in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, we also have what is called the eighth day celebration. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow in our worship service. What it means and why it's a reason for all of us to rejoice in thanksgiving to our Father. Because one thing we know for sure that we find when we look into the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles is that Yahuwah wants all people to be saved. But this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, beloved brethren, Yahuwah is a kind and compassionate Father who wants all people to be saved. This is why let us not take for granted the opportunities that he gives us for salvation. Instead, let us make the most of that opportunity and worship our Father, worship his beloved Son, and prepare for the great day of our salvation. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, most holy and gracious Abba Yahuwah, Thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you because we believe that you are a God who truly cares for each one of us, that you love your people so much, that you want all people to be saved. And so before that trumpet sounds, we ask you, loving Father, may you help us to be your instruments in proclaiming your wonderful words that when the harpazo takes place, we together with the people we love, will be among those taken into the air to meet with your beloved son. Yahushua, the son of God, we have faith in you. We worship and proclaim your name. May you guide us, please, in all that we do and prepare us for that day when you shall return at last. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.